0: Hello, and welcome once again to Prompt Night, brought to you by The Basic Pitches. This is episode 4.
1: My name is Dan, and with me once again... ...is Rhys. Hi. We'll each be pitching three ideas for a piece of writing inspired by our lives and the news of which the other will pick which prompt to follow. But first, let's read the results from last episode. I'm going, well, we're reading my one out first. It's, It's a bit of a departure from the norm, wouldn't you say, Dan? Uh, I quite like it. It's uh, it's gone for more of a email exchange format. Apparently, it's called epistolary writing. So, for example, if you've um, well, read Perks me? of, <laughs> it's a form of writing that, to begin with, took the form of um, an exchange of letters being sent back and forth. And I've I've kind of done that based around this idea of like internal emails in the government's Department of Ethics, basically. Um, which I thought would be amusing and dramatic and whatever. But I'm not happy with it. So just, just, to, put that out just there. to
0: remind the listeners, as it's been um, a little while since the previous episode, um, you were an aide to Boris Johnson.
1: Well, that that was um, part of the premise. Yeah, that it's like, I don't want to describe it anymore. I just want to get over and done with. Let's just jump into it. Okay. The Ethics Account.
0: Dear Mr. Lane, Greetings. From the department of her majesty's exchequer of ethics and morals on behalf of the entirety of the deem welcome to the team the recent election has doubled the workload and upended the office so there ought to be plenty to do and no shortage of staff who would appreciate a helping hand the brexit account is our most volatile ledger being so politically charged so we would appreciate your input on that, though Moral Futures in American Markets has been late to the last three presentations. See what needs to be done and we'll catch up tomorrow. Regards, from the Office of the Chancellor of the Exchequer of Ethics and Morals,
1: Allegra Barker. Dear Miss Barker, Once again, thank you for the opportunity. It's my pleasure to join a department with such a sterling reputation for moral accountancy. I can only hope I live up to your standard. It's nice to have been deemed worthy, if you'll pardon the pun. I appreciate that it is a little hectic in the office at the moment, but it appears a Mr Lau is already working on US futures and instructs me that he's been doing so competently for some time. What's more, I can't seem to find the Brexit ledger, nor who's working on it. Is there another account I could take a look at? Best Grant Law. Dear Mr Law,
0: Greetings from the Department of Majesty's Exchequer and Under-Arbiter of Ethics and Morality. On behalf of the entirety of the Dean, welcome to the team. Please find attached documents relating to a novel coronavirus and official UK response. You'll need to start a new ledger for it. From the Office of the Chancellor and the Exchequer of Ethics and Morals, Allegra
1: Barker. Dear Mrs Barker, I will get right to it. Thank you for forwarding me the relevant documents. Concrete data seems a little thin, and most of it is speculation and plans. Who in the department might know where I could find the relevant health policy and contingency sub-ledgers? I can find the specifics myself. Best, Grant Law. Mr Law, uh, great questions. Let's discuss them tomorrow. Electra Barker. Dear Miss Barker, of course. Once more, thank you for this opportunity. Best, Grant Law. Dear Miss Barker, I'm still looking for the health ledgers. Who do I ask? Best, Grant Law. Miss Law, this topic would be better serviced on the departmental WhatsApp
0: group. I have messaged you there. From the Office of the Chancellor of Ethics and Morals, Ergo Barker.
1: Dear Miss Barker, oops, thanks. Didn't see your earlier messages. We'll chat to you there. What's email used for then? Best, Grant Law. Dear Miss Barker, In all the excitement from the last two days, I've just realised that I forgot to ask as to the moral system the department draws from. I would assume a combination of utilitarianism and conservative-specific morals that encompass modern ideals and election pledges. Do you have someone in charge of that kind of thing? A sort of ethics sysadmin? Best, Grant Law. Dear Mr Law. What an excellent
0: question. Uh, Relevant information is available on the DEM intranet under Guides, Style and MISC. Regards.
1: Dear Miss Barker, thank you for your quick response. I had, in fact, already checked the Deem's Guide. It says the current government's official ethical position is one of moral pragmatism. Regards, Grant Law. Dear Miss Law, the appears you have found your answer. Barker. Dear Miss Barker, sorry, I still don't understand. The guide on the department Internet hasn't been updated since 2001, and no previous guide refers to moral pragmatism. Is there another more recent version? Preferably one that includes a more fleshed out definition, including key ideas. Best, Grant Law. Miss Law, uh, moral
0: pragmatism is a very good and thorough system of ethics. Enough so that it has served the needs of every government for the last 19 years. Given that the DEEM has been using said system without fail for that time, I would suggest any lack of clarity is outside of my remit. Hello, Barker. But what does it mean? Mr Law, in your interview you expressed confidence in your grasp of complex ethical systems. It would be a pity for you to disappoint that expectation so soon.
1: Hello, Barker. Dear Ms Barker, ah, thank you for clearing that up. Sincerely, Grant Law. Dear Ms Barker, Regarding our conversation yesterday, I've not had any luck deciphering your department's methods, and I don't want to present an empty ledger to you next week. Would you have time to discuss it before then? Best, Grant Law. Dear Ms Barker, here's January's ledger for Britain's response to the novel coronavirus. I have a couple of queries reformatting, unsure if you saw my WhatsApp messages, I know you've been having issues getting notified of my messages for a while now, open to ideas for improvement. Best, Grant Law. Grant,
0: thanks for that. I'm sure it will be fine. Sorry I couldn't get back to you sooner. We'll talk after today's brief. Maybe we can discuss those ideas you brought up during your interview. Yours, Allegra Barker.
1: Allegra, thank you. Best, Grant Law. Mr Law, what are these scribbles
0: in my ledger? You know, I present these monthly reports to the cabinet. Your doodles belong in the toddler's colouring books, not in government documents. Is that what you spent the entire month working on, Allegra Barker?
1: Dear Allegra, I wish I had a chance to explain it before I delivered the final ledger to you. I understand it's a little arcane, but without more clarity, it's the best I could manage. Having never heard of moral pragmatism nor receiving relevant instruction, your expectations were unclear. If I could have a moment of your time to explain my methods, I believe the formulae, albeit of my own unique design, might prove useful to the entire department. Sincerely, Grant Law. Mr
0: Law, allow to clarify. If it happens again, you can explain by
1: resigning. i Dear Ms Barker, understood. Sincerely, G Law. Dear all, it has been suggested
0: that Intel messaging should be more upbeat in the hopes of improving staff morale and and boosting productivity. I hope this suits your liking as much as it does mine. Cheerio. Thank you, Dear Mr. Law, as per our agreement earlier today, in future, you will use a numerical system to ensure a clear presentation of all DEEM documents, including but not limited to ledgers, summaries, statements, and forecasts please refrain from supplanting or supplementing the formatting of the above mentioned with formulae of your own unique design. My apologies if my prior instructions were not clear enough to avoid your labouring under the confusion that has afflicted you this past month. Cheerio. And how am I supposed to do that? Mr. Law, whatever solution you settle on, I shall look forward discussing it at your performance review. Cheerio, Leke Barker. Grant, in the future, if you have any problems, please come straight to me. I would hate to think that your time in this department will be anything other than long-lived and useful. Cheerio, Leke Barker.
1: Ms Barker, I appreciate being in your thoughts, but I can assure you I have no idea what you mean. Sincerely, Grant Law. And that's that. I thought like, like that. I think
0: it's good. There's a lot of subtleties uh, within the emails, hopefully, that we brought out with the way that we read that. Um, no, I like it. <laughs> it it, 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 it uh, shows bureaucracy, it shows frustration with a system, it shows a guy who's coming in to try and help, you know, not so sort much of shake things up, but. but you know, uh, run run things a certain way, and 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 do his best, and just be caught up in all the red tape and expectations and and, and confusion. I think you've 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 done well to to sort of portray that.
1: Well, thanks. That's really kind. Uh, but I, I still don't think that it really works as like a piece of writing presented in this way. I, I halfway through, I realized what I think my biggest mistake was. And that was during lockdown, I've been playing a lot of video games. And, you know, in video games, you can often find a lot of the backstory in, like, scattered messages, in, like, exploration RPGs and whatever. Mm. And I think I'd played a few of those games and, like, sort of taken that as my format for this story. And that while it works, when you're kind of piecing it together, to be presented with it all at once feels a little lacklustre, maybe.
0: So should we be presenting this to the uh, listeners and readers... Uh, that these are scattered notes that they find in uh, the year 3000 in a, po- <laughs> in a post-apocalyptic uh, House of Parliament or something.
1: Yeah, like that might not be an awful idea. There you go. Let's, let's retcon that. <laughs>
0: oh, okay, well, I, I think you've done a really good job at um, taking the time to uh, produce a piece in a format for that is different and, and perhaps something that you found challenging. I think it's good that we challenge ourselves, even if the end results um, uh, are, are, aren't quite what perhaps we, we wanted them to be. It still shows the process.
1: That is a great diplomatic answer. Have you ever considered a job at the Deem you'd fit right in? Uh, have you based uh, your lead character on me? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I think you're an upstanding principled guy. Why not? Well, I think there's worse things to call you. I'll be honest, uh, that's the nicest thing I've ever said to me.
0: <laughs> so, uh, thank you for your piece once again, Rhys. Uh, that was cool. really good. Let's move on to something better. It. I've stumbled across Let's an article. Stay different. Let's stay different, not better.
1: Different upwardly. <laughs> 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 it's called uh, Supermash and the Art of the Hybrid Genre by Dan Green. For the past few days, I've been playing Supermash, developed and published by Digital Continue. SuperMash bids itself as a game that makes games. You run a video game store that's on the verge of closing, when you discover an old retro console that lets you combine, or mash, two different genres of game together to generate a unique old school title that borrows elements from your chosen games. Every game you generate has its own challenge for you to complete. Whether the task is achievable however is a whole other story. In fact SuperMash begins with a screen that states, SuperMash doesn't design games a person would. The matches can be good, weird, unbalanced, incredibly hard, super easy. The fun comes from finding and saving the games, and rising to the challenge to overcome seemingly unbeatable mashes. In a bid to perhaps spice things up a bit, Digital Continue also incorporated glitches into the Super Mash generation process. That's right, a retro game wouldn't be retro without the odd glitch now, would it? The difference here is that these glitches actively affect the game's mechanics with some having positive effects and others negative. Which is why in my time playing Super Mash, I have often found that it were the glitches themselves that dictated if my playthrough would be a success or failure, more so than the combination of the two chosen genres. For example, the Conqueror Ninja was an example of a fun functioning stealth and Metroidvania mash, where I played as Quinn on a 5 minute mission to kill all the Shadow Bats throughout the level with my silenced pistol. I particularly liked the sonaresque field of vision cones they gave the bats. As long as you stayed clear of these, you remained undetected. Where the glitch came into play was the spawning of a heart canister every time I got hit by an enemy. This essentially resulted in me being somewhat invincible. Meanwhile, Forgotten Legends of the Epic Gems was a hilarious combination of shooter and adventure, as my G-74 Striker aircraft navigated a Zelda-like dungeon, swinging a stone blade sword and breaking pots. There was even a secret area which transported me to a traditional top-down shmup environment. This time, the active glitch was a treasure chest that spawned after several swings of my sword, which would contain either power-ups, gems or hearts. So, if you spammed the attack button, you would spawn in more chests. Sadly, Boing Boing Town was just impossible. I received a task from a customer to create a hard platformer JRPG, and boy did SuperMesh overachieve. Despite her best efforts, Lady Justus and her team were no match for the evil undead when the active glitch was to spawn a new enemy foe during a random encounter battle on each successful hit by the enemy. Soon outnumbered, I never got past the first fight. All of this got me thinking. How do we approach genre mashing in literature? Cross-genre, or hybrid genre writing, is hugely popular and there has been a long-established approach to fiction writing. William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, 1793, is considered a truly classic example of hybrid genre fiction, with a blend of poetry, prose and engravings. In contemporary fiction we're more likely to think of contrasting combinations such as the noir sci-fi Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the period drama horror splicing of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, the crime fantasy of Rivers of London and The City and the City, and the fantasy romance of YA series Twilight and The Mortal Instruments. However, Wikipedia also suggests an action comedy, comedy comedy-drama, and romantic comedy, among others as examples of literary mashes. I can't help but these have become such mainstream, popular combinations that they are taken for granted as genre hybrids. So, how do you pen a successful cross-genre novel? Esther Rabbit, author and content creator, proposes there are two types of reader to identify when marketing your story. There's the reality-anchored reader, Even when reading works of fiction, this reader seeks real-life experiences through the written word. No flying unicorns, no glitchy vampires, no magic-wielding creatures. Just life unfolding in its realistic layers, whether it's drama, romance, or comedy. Then there's the fantasy-anchored reader. This reader is looking for a way out of real life, wanting nothing more than to escape in a world where nothing is impossible. Supernatural creatures, life on other planets, worlds hidden in plain sight. In addition to this, Michelle Richmond proposes three key objectives to the perfect SuperMASH formula. Recognise your primary genre and use it as your compass. Let your primary genre give your story structure and you'll have a strong foundation upon which to build. Draw on your strengths as a writer, regardless of genre. Write what you love and write it with an eye towards entertaining your reader. Create characters that defy genre conventions. If you were to extract your main character from the novel and set them down in an entirely different situation, would the reader still care what happens to them? So how far could we push this cross-genre envelope? How far flung and subversive can we get before the sublime becomes ridiculous? How about The Hunt for Red Riding Hood? Classic fairy tale meets Tom Clancy thriller. A gripping story of a former woodcutter turned CIA agent tracking down a courageous female Soviet captain who defect from the big bad USSR in a desperate bid to deliver a nuclear submarine to the safe hands of her American grandmother. Sun Tzu's The Art of War and Peace A reimagining of Tolstoy's epic, as a Count's illegitimate son employs an ancient Chinese battle strategy in his bid to woo a beautiful nobleman's daughter and fend off a competing prince while fighting against Napoleon's invading forces. Fear and Loathing in Lilliput Gulliver embarks on an alcohol and drug fueled bender believing himself to be journeying across seas and documents a psychedelic adventure as he's held captive by tiny people and befriended by enormous giants only to find he's tripping balls in a two-star motel room. Anyway, I'm off to pitch my new TV programme to the BBC Androcles and the Dragon's Den part Aesop's fable, part reality show, as several budding entrepreneurs pitch their inventions to remove a thorn from Peter Jones's rear end, who will invest in return for 40% of the company. I think I'm onto something with this one. <laughs> I, had to, uh, I had to stop myself laughing several times in that
0: one. I, I, I had fun writing this one. Uh, it, it was quite difficult. It was quite difficult, but once I got past this sort of uh, factual theory, and on to the sort of creative aspect, um, I mean, I, I I went through various um, various combinations until I I settled on those on those three or four. Uh, but it's the part that I was was wanting to try to incorporate. Um, I just want to touch on this was mm. um, looking at how I think glitches could have affected. My three or four stories, and I never quite quite got round to perfecting that. So, if I could have redone that piece, I would have tried to touch on whole glitch aspect just to try and tie hmm. the start and the end together. But no, I think it was uh, it was it was quite a fun piece to write, and, and and hopefully you you enjoyed reading it.
1: Oh, I did. I loved it. I'm a bit confused. What would a literary glitch look like? Because glitches, are, I, I, I think of them as kind of unique to games because they're just accidents from code. With cinema, you could do it. Like if you've got the wrong cut in the wrong place or it's gone on a bit too long and there's that kind of breaking of the fourth wall when maybe someone yells cut and you haven't cut the scene in time. But I don't know how you do that with a novel.
0: I think that was partly where I was coming unstuck yeah because I realized that I'd have to describe the glitch mm-hmm. and potentially the backstory to the glitch, which mean and by the time you've done that does does the glitch have the same level as it of of surprise and impact huh where you sort of already just given the reason for it being there in the first place yeah, it's quite difficult um
1: I guess the way you might do it is if if it was like just a random chapter inserted from another work which totally changes the tone i
0: see you're you're thinking of a literal glitch.
1: like a, yeah like a physical yeah and,
0: yeah see i was thinking there would be a glitch in the story so whether something happens fiction you know, in terms of the fictional story yeah whether there was something that happened to one of the characters that was a glitch like say i don't know you know the, the, the character can only run backwards yeah, or, or something like that, you know, <laughs> that kind of glitch, um, yeah. rather than half the books missing.
1: Well, so you know the novelist, sci-fi novelist, Philip K. Dick? Yes. Um, uh, years ago, I bought one of his books called Lies Inc. And it was prefaced with this little warning saying that he was rewriting the book, or he was writing a different edition, something like that, when he died. And that this copy was using the new ending. And then when I read it, you get to a point like two thirds of the book in where it feels like the story just completely changes. There's like some piece of information that's just been left out. And so it just it was so difficult to actually understand what was happening in this book. And that's how I'd imagine these glitches working, that either there's something inserted that shouldn't be there or something taken out, which definitely needs to be there. So do you think that
0: they ended up publishing a story that he effectively hadn't finished editing
1: yeah, well, that's that's my understanding of it. There was a completed version of it that he wasn't happy with, I think. And then he was rewriting the ending for a, for a reprint or another edition. Mm. And he didn't finish that rewrite. And the publishers thought, look, we can make a buck off this. Because <laughs> whoever's already bought it might buy it again for the new ending. So let's just put it out there. Yeah, and, see, it's, 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 yeah. it's, a,
0: it's a bit different when, you know, someone unfortunately passes away during filming but they're still able to sort of CGI that person in. You can't, really, you can't <laughs> yeah. really CGI an author to finish the edits. You have to sort of attempt to edit it yourself and, and assume mm. you know what he wanted to change.
1: Was it Douglas Adams when he passed away? They had, uh, I think the author of Artemis Fowl, if I'm remembering it correctly, is it Owen Colfer, I think, finished one of his novels? Hmm. I didn't know that. I might be completely wrong, but yeah, I think it's it's been done, um, and it's a different way of doing the glitch yeah. in uh, writing.
0: So uh, those are our two articles from the last episode, uh, and now I guess we should move on to our three prompts for this episode.
1: Yep, as um as the prodigy say, smack my pitch up. Would you like to start it's, first? Uh, yeah, go for it um i brought it on myself with that terrible pun
0: you did you may you may start now
1: so dan <laughs> you're not gonna like this one uh what's the difference between a photograph and a snapshot
0: uh i don't know reese what's the difference between a photograph and a snapshot
1: well it's semantics and i don't i don't like semantics it's it's like arguing like there's this underlying assumption that a photograph is more valuable than a snapshot like, you put more effort into it. But I, I think that's kind of nonsense. It's it's kind of like arguing how good a piece of writing is based on how long it is. As though a novel is inherently better than a short story. Which is an opinion I used to hold. And I've, I've been convinced otherwise. <laughs> okay. But do, do, do you agree? Do you think that a novel is better than a short story? Intrinsically?
0: I, I, I think they both have equal weight. There are... Uh some very good short pieces. Um, there's some excellent works of fiction that are merely sentences long. Uh, a very long, terribly written novel and an excellently written short story.
1: Yeah, exactly. If you run the gamut of photo experiences, you have everything from a selfie to a studio shoot. And my argument is that you get out what you put in with these things. like so much in life. There's um There's a story of Picasso paying for a meal with a doodle because the restaurant owner asked him for one. And in return, Picasso asks for like several million pesetas and change. And the restaurant owner says, what do you mean? This only took you seconds to draw. And Picasso says something along the lines of, but it's taken me a lifetime to learn, to draw like that. I
0: like that. That's quite good. Right? That's that's nice. That's really good. Yeah, that's good. That, I think, would be excellent. That's the sort of thing I want to use when someone says, can't you just Photoshop this for me? (laughs) You
1: know? Yeah. I was just curious, like, is there, is there, like, a a good, like, opinion piece in that, in just kind of ranting, I guess, for a bit about these arbitrary distinctions and about people not really being able to tell the difference between something that, you know, they, they can appreciate the value of and something they can't appreciate the value of but is still equal in some way? Like, it just feels like people are blinkered sometimes.
0: I think it depends. I think it depends if um, the person involved, who is effectively judging these pieces of works, whether they be photographs, snapshots, unless unless they're aware of the time and effort that they have taken to achieve. Like for instance, if you've, if I'm sure you have, if you've been to see the uh, wildlife photographer of the year. Exhibit that obviously happens every year. Mm. Um, you'll have might not happen
1: this year. Uh, well, this is true. <laughs> I, I,
0: I was just thinking that it might it might be digital. Yeah. They might yeah. have an online. Uh, I guess they might have like an online gallery of winners. Mm-hmm. But you'll have things like, uh, we travelled to the Serengeti and camped for four days to find this rare spot. You know, to capture this thing." Or there's things like um, uh, there was a photograph of a snow leopard at night in the wild that was incredibly rare and very, very um, uh, special because of the almost impossible task to achieve such a photograph. Hmm. So, but if you didn't necessarily know the story behind the photograph, you might just say, that's a lovely picture of a leopard. And then you would move on. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think it I think it depends. Like so if, if if say I was on Instagram and there was a picture of a leopard and then there was a picture of, I don't know, a sunset, you know, I probably quite like the sunset just as much as the leopard. But a sunset usually is easier to capture than an incredibly rare species of wild cat.
1: No, for sure. So um when it comes to your experiences of photos taken of you i'm just wondering like would you say that like um, like a selfie that you've taken of yourself and your daughter put that next to like a studio shoot of yourself and your daughter cuz i know you've had one of those how would you compare those two what what would you say like the difference is to you
0: well i think obviously one uh, i think one i would look at is on oh, more of a, of a purely sort of technical merit in terms of visual quality sharpness. But the other one might just be more of an emotive sentimental value, you know. This you no know, let's say there's a photo taken of us. It, it, it's it's not just we took a selfie, but this commemorates a date in time where we were doing something on this day together that brings back a memory hmm. and might evoke more of a memory than a studio photo shoot.
1: It's almost like the story of the snow leopard, that it adds value to the
0: the image. But the studio shoot is just as lovely to see on on the wall or in an album. But you'll go, oh yeah, that was the day we went to take our photo. Not that was the day we went for a picnic or went to see friends and family or went on a trip somewhere. Yeah. So I I
1: think that's how I would look at those pieces. Well, and I've never seen a selfie framed and put on the wall.
0: Really? Never. No,
1: no. Do you, have you? Do you know anyone who has?
0: Uh, I guess it again depends on the context. Like, I've, I've taken a photograph of, say, myself and my wife whilst we've been on holiday. And it turned out to be a nice photo. So we put it in a little frame. Oh, that's cute. But it's not like, here's me on the bus. Eh. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not like, you know, here's uh, me. Here's me with a horrible Snapchat filter. It's not, no, it's, it's,
1: it has Here's to be. Here's me pulling a dumb oh, face, exposing exactly. all of
0: my chins. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, I'd better take down half photos in the house. <laughs> um, cool. Okay. So, so just getting back to your um, sort of prompt, should I say? Yeah. It, it's more, it's looking at the conversation over um, should a, photograph as you put it holds more or equal merit to a snapshot and vice versa right yeah and then but then also perhaps applying that to things like a short story and a novel or what have you what is it basically i think what we're all trying to say here is is it quantity or quality
1: well it's it's that but also what do these terms mean which leads me on to my second prompt in uh-huh. a very smooth segue sort of style, which is called What's in a Name? The Mary Rose by any other name is still a ship. Because my topic for this one is boat names, which is okay. a, a new little fascination of mine. How many ships can you name? A few, I guess.
0: <laughs> do, do, do you want me to yeah, name Yeah, give name? me a couple of names.
1: Okay. Um, so,
0: uh, Boat Team at Boatface. Yep. Obviously. Cool. Yep. I'm glad that's number uh, one. Hey, um... HMS Belfast. Yeah. Um, uh, the SSSSS. what? <laughs> <from> <sort. laughs> I don't know that uh, <laughs> one. <laughs> the SSSSS. Um, yes. <laughs> um, the May Rose, May Celeste, um, Titanic. Mm-hmm. Uh,.
1: Yeah, uh, that's, that's yeah, a good number. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's that's, that's, yeah. There, there,
0: there, there, there's a There's more, but those are the I also areas, have, I also have uh, the
1: Mayflower, the S.S. Anne, the Black Pearl, and the Wonka, Wonkatania, which is... Oh, so I see, of course, the Black Pearl. Black Pearl. That. Yeah. You know, I've got a few more, but I thought, yeah, that's a comprehensive list. And what I really yeah. like about them all is that they suggest something about, not necessarily the boat itself that it's attached to, but people's attitudes towards ships and the roles that they play in people's lives and the kind of air that they want to give to them so for example the titanic kind of it reflects the fact that it was a huge ship it was a titan of a ship and it was meant to be indestructible and whatever and now there's the kind of irony attached to that whereas mm. boaty Boatface <laughs> is is related to the fact that the, the public doesn't have any kind of attachment to the ship it was naming is it, what was it, ended up calling the um, HMS Attenborough or something like that? So, yes,
0: yes. But this is what happens when you allow the public to name anything. Well, yeah, but it's... They will always go for something stupid because that's what's funny.
1: Yeah, well, they don't have a relationship to the boat. And so they want yeah, to not, feel something and what's easiest to feel is humour. Right. I think that's very natural. Because
0: would you name your own boat... Boat in my boat face. Now I would. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do. Perhaps, perhaps not. But if you're letting me name somebody else's, okay. Sure. Okay. It's not mine. Let's give it a ludicrous name.
1: Well, this brings me on to Elon Musk.
0: Well, yes. Naturally. So. Well, or rather, his daughter. I suppose. Well,
1: I mean, yeah, but I am talking about a ship that he's named. Oh yeah. So I see. So I was watching... Is that, is that is that just as cryptic? No, but it's it's much more interesting. So uh, did you watch the NASA and SpaceX launch of the Dragon crew pod? They live streamed it on YouTube. It was seriously cool.
0: I, I did see some of it. I did catch some of it. Yeah, no, it was fantastic.
1: One of the cool things about SpaceX is that they're trying to introduce you know, reusability into spacecraft. So normally, you know... You've got the engines or the the base layer. You fire it off and then it's just gone. It's kind of floating about in space somewhere. It's debris and it's trash. But what SpaceX wants to do is reuse things like that. A, to stop cluttering up space, but B, to kind of lower the cost of space exploration. And so one of the things they've done is they've created autonomous spaceport drone ships in order to recover these bits of um, spacecraft debris okay and there's one of them called the of course i still love you which is a fantastic name like it, it suggests a complicated relationship between two people in an imaginary conversation do you catch that the of That's, course i still love you yeah how cool is so,
0: that? that so these are drone drone spaceport ships yeah so I'm it's kind of right. like an
1: aircraft carrier but for spacecraft and so it they the AI's on board communicate with each other so that they, <laughs> yeah, they they head towards each other and the the thing lands perfectly upright on this spaceport drone ship.
0: The future's here, right? The future's now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's
1: it's it's fascinating that, that that these things can be achieved. There's another one. It's called just read the instructions. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Right. I like that. They're great. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Do you think that's Do you think that's the name that they actually gave it? Or do you think when the person who was inputting the name <laughs> uh,
1: said, sorry, what was that again? And someone said, oh, just, just read the instructions. I wish they were. It turns out these are both names uh, given to sentient starships in a sci-fi novel called The Player of Games by Ian Banks. So it makes sense I see. that sentient starships are the um inspiration for naming autonomous spaceport drone ships. And, you know, the the kind of linking, the thematic link, is really interesting in the naming there. And then you kind of twin that with the fact that Elon Musk is known for naming his daughter how do you pronounce it? if a-
0: All I know is it's worth about I think it's worth like a triple word score at least. <laughs> um you know, yeah. it's got at least 45
1: points So uh, It Scrabble would win you Scrabble two. by itself. It's like the golden snitch of Scrabble.
0: Although apparently Grimes doesn't necessarily know how it's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, I think someone said, <laughs> is this how you pronounce it? And she went, uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> Just, That's a good like, attitude to have. Yeah, why not? It works. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. God. Couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, it'd be quite a dark (laughs) twist if neither Grimes nor Elon Musk end up parenting the child at all. And so they don't need to know how to say the name. They're just like, oh, yeah, we we write the name down on documents. That's all we need to know.
0: Right. So their name, because if you recall, they actually had to change the name. Oh, did they? Because it wouldn't actually be registered. Oh. So... Um, I just found an article here. It says, early this month, Tesla and SpaceX CEO Musk announced the birth of the baby boy in a post on Twitter revealing his son was was called XAE, funny symbol, A-12 Musk. That's, that sounds like what an astronomer would call a new moon.
1: It sounds like one of the potential yeah. names for Prince. When he was going through uh, possible aliases, like Funny Squiggle, no, A E Funny Squiggle, Mm, no, not that either. But but you know these sort of these
0: um, uh, asteroids that they find on some sort of far flung belt. (laughs) It's it's that sort of name process. So anyway, it it, it carries on. Speculation arose that the unusual moniker might fall foul of the law in California, or anywhere. Surely, freaking anywhere. Where the couple live, as names can only use the twenty-six alphabetical characters of the English language.
1: Ah, all
0: right. So instead, I think they're going. They've gone with XAE, which technically is still not an alphabetical letter in the English language. A dash XII. So that's how they've got around with the A twelve they put 12 in Roman numerals. Oh, I see. So X, A, E, squiggle, whatever that is. A dash X, I, I. There probably is a, a uh, I'm trying to look at how you, is there a way to actively pronounce A, E pronunciation? Here we go. So the pair A, E, or the single mushed together symbol, bleh, <laughs> <laughs> is, <laughs> is not is not pronounced as two separate vowels. It comes almost always from a borrowing from Latin. In the original lef- Latin, it is pronounced as A, as in IPA, or to rhyme with the word I. Oh, so it's I. Right, so AE is pronounced I, like the two I's that you, that you have in your face. So there you go. So, like is actually I, exactly. Zaisai, that's cool.
1: It probably won't catch on anytime soon.
0: Grimes previously broke down the meaning of the name for intrigued fans. Um, X stands for the unknown variable. Meanwhile, I, or I, (laughs) is the elven spelling of A-I, which is shorthand for artificial intelligence and is the word for love in several languages, including Japanese. A-12, precursor to SR-17, is their favourite aircraft. No weapons, no defences, just speed. Is that the Lockheed? Are they based in A Lockheed A-12? An A in the name also represents Archangel, which she described as her favourite song.
1: So it almost sounds like a name that's more fitting for an autonomous spaceport drone ship than for a child maybe they Basically. got it the wrong way round that the child is meant to be called of course I still love you which would be a great yes. name for a kid come here or I'm very disappointed for... with you of course I still love you
0: or just for the instructions <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a name for a, f- for a father no or like yes, someone you're yes, arguing with yeah, rather than your child I, I'm,
0: I'm, I
1: may just adapt that for myself <laughs> um, but yeah the point of this because as you know Dan, as you know, as a writer, when you're writing, you have to come up with names, not just for your characters, but for the places they go and anything they interact with, but anything that doesn't already exist and have a name. So any like sci-fi and fantasy are good examples of this. Sure. And it's very, it's very difficult as well. Right. It is really hard. And what I end up doing is trying to find convoluted excuses for naming something, a certain thing that end up having no relation to the actual finished piece. So I wanted a chance to just think about this a bit more, and I thought this article would be basically like a listicle of ten ships with prominent names, and like uh, um, um, musing about their the etymology, the naming, and you know what it means and what it suggests about the use of the boat. Hmm. So yeah, that's cool. that is an idea.
0: No, I think that's I think that's uh, a really nice, a really nice topic, and and obviously as we
1: as we described somewhat topical. Yeah um okay so number three then third pitch when you're writing dan following on from when you're writing and naming things when you're writing about things the visual world how much do you specify what is seen versus how it's seen
0: Ooh, question i'm quite a fence sitter shall we say when it comes to being overly or underly descriptive Personally, I, I I like to leave a little to the imagination of the reader because particularly with, say, science fiction or fantasy, I think it's important that you give just enough for someone to start forming um, a visual uh, aspect of a character or a place or an object mm-hmm. in their own head. Yeah, So, but not describe you know,
1: so much they get bored by the end of the first page.
0: Well, or, or more case of you've literally left me nothing. You know, <laughs> the, 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 there's literally not, nothing that I can... Po- I may as well have just watched a film of this book. Yeah. You know how some people say, well, a book is better because you can you know, imagine what that character is like rather than... And then when you watch the film, it never looks like the character you imagined. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right?
0: Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, there's a line. So I try to be somewhat descriptive about, say... A person, but I might be more descriptive about how they're feeling, um, rather than let's say, you know, the color of their eyes or um, the length of their beard or uh, how many ruffles are in their jacket, that kind of thing.
1: Sure. Well, and I think what adds to the complexity almost is that when you're writing description, part of the point is to show the world from a perspective, like even if you're writing um, an omniscient narrator. For example, you have to decide what that narrator finds relevant, uh, pertinent, what's worth saying and looking at. And you know, if you're writing from a, a character's POV, if you're writing first person, for example, that's even more so the case, mm. right? And that's difficult, not just because you have to imagine how someone else sees the world, but also how they don't. Like, we take so much of our own subjectivity for granted that we don't sometimes realise what it is we're looking at and how we frame it to ourselves.
0: I suppose you also have to be very careful that, you know, um, as the writer or author, Mm -hmm. you may not at that point in time, but you effectively know all that is contained within the story. You know the premise, you know the outcome you know what will happen to this character long before they do because you're writing the story but if you're writing in the first person you have to write as if you have no idea so there's also the added complexities of almost having to basically get into the head of your character mm. almost like it's kind of like method acting or method writing perhaps yeah, no, definitely. Because you, you 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 if you write in a way that suggests that character knows too much too early, it doesn't necessarily work.
1: I started thinking about it like the invisible gorilla experiment. Do you know Go on. You not heard of it. Okay, so it's a test where subjects are asked to watch a video of a group of people throwing a basketball or several basketballs around and you went to count how many times a basketball was passed from somebody with a red shirt to somebody with a yellow shirt, something like that. And then at the end of the test, they asked all the participants, Did you see the gorilla walking in the background? Oh,
0: I have heard about this. And then they, and then they, they obviously rewind it and, and rewind it. They play it back. Yeah. Um, and then say, Look, and then they say, Yes, no. That's, I guess that's almost like misdirection, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of writing perspective as well. That you have to misdirect your readers into thinking that, like sometimes, that you have to misdirect them to think that there is no gap between the objective physical world and the subjective internal world of your characters, mm. or or yours as a writer, because if you are too present in the writing, it's kind of a turn off for some readers. Awesome.
0: Okay, that's that's a really that's a very interesting topic. So, how uh, what would be your uh, title for this?
1: don't have one right now Okay. Uh, I thought about the idea I thought about all the different places it could go and then I would just sort of come and buy a title by the end
0: so just in short just in, su- in summary this piece would entail
1: oh I thought you were going to answer that for me <laughs> no I'm, I'm I sorry I was giving <laughs> the opportunity to
0: just, uh, just in a nutshell surmise because we've we've, quite, we've explored this quite a bit now um, just to sort of uh, sort of uh, bring to 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 well, a close. Well,
1: here is a bit of a sucker punch, uh, an old M Night Shyamalan twist in the tail, because actually this essay, this little article, is also about photography. Ha ha! Gotcha! <laughs> I told you I'd make it work eventually. Um, I, was <laughs>
0: where, I was wondering where. I was wondering It's almost like you've sort of pulled the uh, the wall from my eyes.
1: Yeah. Right. There's so much about photography that people focus on what is seen rather than how it's seen. And that's where I was getting out with this, that if you look at maybe a thousand photographs of the same thing, like the moon, for example. And if you take a look at all the different ways it's been photographed, you can start to tell more about the photographers and their intention. You know, you can kind of look at the what's seen, you look at the how it's seen, and then you can start asking why it's seen that way. And I think that works for all arts. Uh, it's not just photography, it's like writing as well. Like the whole way we've been talking about this is through writing.
0: Uh, I think it's great. I think, so I think all three are uh, uh, equally uh, interesting and, and have a lot of premise. I think I'm gonna go photography versus snapshot. I think that's a really nice uh, uh, element to explore and, and to work out the, the merits or what can have merits essentially it's it's begging the question what is art Hmm. Um, for both literal works and visual works and as you know art and beauty is in the eye of the beholder it's it's entirely subjective but i i I do look forward to your reasonings and and arguments for and against um photo versus instagram very good
1: cheers yeah there was a quote i heard recently that was um Beauty's in the eye of whoever's signing the check. <laughs> yes, very <laughs> much so. I like that. Cool. Well, that's that's mine out of the way. Let's hear yours. Okay. First of all, um, are you aware of a company
0: called Tencent? Ten, Tencent. Ten. Ten cent. Ten cent. No, no. What do they do? So, Tencent are a huge um, uh, Chinese. Uh, sort of conglomerate organisation, very much tech-focused. They have a large market, of all things, in the mobile phone game industry. Um, They uh, also have big investments in things like Riot Games for uh, League of Legends, Mm -hmm. amongst others. But the reason I'm talking about Tencent today is that they are planning to build a Monaco-sized city of the future in Shenzhen. Wow, what does that involve? So, I was immediately hooked. Yeah. So, it's dubbed Net City. It's 2 million square metres of urban development that will prioritise pedestrians, green spaces and self-driving vehicles according to its designers and the ambitious city within a city is set to occupy a stretch of reclaimed land designed to accommodate a population of eighty thousand people it will primarily serve tencent uh the conglomerate who is also behind wechat and china's popular qq messaging service i mean these guys rake in money like you wouldn't believe I mean, if Only if you spend lot, any sort of amount of time with mobile gaming these days, a lot of games are initially free to start rather than free to play. We'll always have hooks, financial hooks like oh you've run out of stamina, pay X amount for some gems to you know get more. And, and there are people who play these games who are known as whales who effectively will just funnel money into these uh, apps like you wouldn't believe. And, and that's where they get stacks and stacks of money from, way more than traditional um, video game industry uh, releases would ever dream of. The point of the article is also saying that they're looking to eliminate the car. Ah. So with an unusually large vacant plot to work with, um, they were able to rethink the car's role in urban planning. Their main goal was to provide a place where innovation can flourish and to minimise the impact of the car as much as possible.
1: And it sounds fantastic.
0: The first phase of the business district also being built on reclaimed land uh, of a a, a similar development in Shenzhen is planning to be complete by 2022. But Tencent's net city, it says here, will take around seven years to complete. That sounds insanely fast to me. An entire city in seven years.
1: Well, China Uh, did not put up, was it two hospitals for tackling the coronavirus? In in barely a week. Days, yeah.
0: That's true, that's true. I mean, when you have a workforce of effectively a billion people time is just not an
1: issue no right if you could flat pack a city so you basically have an ikea that makes hospitals schools apartments <laughs> factories then yeah you know that would, that would work
0: i i am not reading the instructions to a skyscraper <laughs> i'm sorry um I, ikea is a relationship tester um at the best of times um you know, my, my wife and I have scraped through a chest of drawers and a wardrobe. I don't know if we could do, you know, um, a city. That could be... First of all, I just know that someone's going to lose the Allen key.
1: <laughs> right?
0: And if that goes, then, you know, you may as well forget it. But the point is, it says here that um, uh, construction expects to commence later this year. Now the reason I bring this up, one, I'm 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 fascinated by this whole idea of like a a a tech city, Um, but are you familiar with the film Rollable? No. Have you seen Rollable? Rollable is basically set in the future where um, large companies and conglomerates basically run the world. Kind of as they do now. (laughs) But effectively, the idea that countries are almost replaced with companies. So, you know, um, they are effectively the ones in power. Mm -hmm. So you have this very crazy dystopian future where, you know, let's say, I don't know, you know, uh, Microsoft and Coca-Cola rule this part of the world... And then so and so and and my 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 idea behind my initial ask would actually be more of like a short creative fiction piece where, um, I effectively write my idea, uh, or, or my 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 thoughts on a, um, dystopic, future, uh, where where the, the world is is effectively, a series of, uh, manufacturers and companies. What that would look like um who those companies might be, and how they rose to secure their parts of the globe
1: hmm that sounds cool it gives a new meaning to the idea of amazonians
0: it does it does very much so I like that I like that I might hmm. use that actually <laughs> um but I mean I mean this isn't the first time that, i mean in a way it's not it's a bit different but it's not the first time that obviously um large, huge multinational companies have effectively built a city to house, you know, their staff or their production facilities. Sure, like, Um, didn't
1: Cadbury have a a village for its workers?
0: Well, I know that Tesco have some sort of massive, like, town hub in, like, the Midlands somewhere. Hmm. It's basically, like, the size of a town and it's like the part of their distribution network. Which is, I like, think, it's quite, it's cool and quite scary at the same time.
1: I don't know if you've heard you of know. any examples of you, these like, cities that haven't worked before. So they're called ghost cities and they're kind of meant to be these cities that are built from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And then for one reason or another, you know, you can't move people in gradually. You need everything in there at once in order for the infrastructure to work properly and to have the economy functioning to keep it going. Um so i'm just wondering how how they do it differently with net city
0: i know i mean it's it's i, I think it's a, a a fascinating read so so yeah my, my first pitch is um a envisioning of um, a sort of conglomerate run future
1: hmm cool
0: okay what's your pitch number 2 okay pitch number 2 um, pitch number 2 uh, I'll start with the premise first, rather than the rather than the inspiration. Mm -hmm. What is the price of fame? Oh, or rather, what is the price on experiencing uh, a moment with fame? Okay, elaborate. Yeah. Um. So. Actors Keanu Reeves and Jonathan Frakes are among celebrities who are offering fans the opportunity to chat one-to-one via Zoom during lockdown. Whoa. And basically, uh, they are um, auctioning these Zoom calls for charity, albeit, uh, and currently the highest bid was almost eight thousand pounds. Wow, So a 15 minute call.
1: Is that one of those whales you were talking about earlier?
0: I mean again, uh, I should preface all of this by saying I think it's a wonderful thing for charity, but I'm also quite intrigued that someone would want to spend eight grand to chat to Keanu Reeves for about 15 minutes over a video call yeah it's quite astonishing and then also um, uh, apparently there's a celebrity message platform called Cameo and they're saying that a grand will buy a 10 minute zoom call with Jonathan Frakes who is a Star Trek actor or skateboarder Tony Hawk Huh. So uh, if you pay a $1,000, Tony Hawk will chat to you for 10 minutes. Imagine that as a conversation. Hi, I'm Tony Hawk. <laughs> right? I understand you've paid a grand to talk to me for 10 minutes.
1: Hi, yes, Mr. Hawk. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. I've never skateboarded in my life, but I've played all your video games. Uh, what do we talk about for the rest of the nine minutes and 30 seconds? This
0: is my point. How awkward is that conversation going to be? Like, I don't know you. I've never met you. But I'm now, a, not obliged, I guess, but, you know, I'm somewhat obliged to talk to you for 10 minutes or more. Because you've obviously, you know, you've paid this money. It's kind of a weird premise, right? A weird yeah. set or scenario. So... So it says here that Cameo says there's been a ton of interest in its Zoom service Cameo Live, despite just 31 celebrities signing up since launch. So you've got 31 celebrities. I suppose, (laughs) it. I guess, does it make sense because of the scenario that maybe these celebrities can't go out and do film work or TV work
1: so, who, are, who are they? Who are these 31 celebrities, you know?
0: This, this is the annoying thing. It doesn't actually... It doesn't necessarily say, actually, but it does here say that bookings were a mixture of fans buying video calls as gifts for themselves or friends and businesses purchasing them for office events and engagements.
1: Oh, I can understand that. So that bit that makes I sort of understand. It,
0: yeah. But it's the... It's the... It's, it's the your, it's, it's 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 this purchasing purchasing of virtual time with someone who you might be a huge fan of. So I was just quite fascinated by this this whole sense of can you put a can you put a price on fame? And I don't mean that from the perspective of the person who's famous, but of someone who is vying for say that their favorite actors attention albeit for 10 15 minutes at a time i just find the whole yeah. thing very i just find the thing the whole thing very unusual like well, if you take if you take the charity aspect out of it would they still be paying eight grand i don't know and then i guess there's there's also this there's the other aspect to it as well which is Why can't, if you want to give money to charity, why not just give the eight grand? Why does there always have to be a reward (laughs) when it comes to charity? There's always... Makes you feel a bit cynical, um, doesn't it? I'm very much for giving money for causes, worthy causes. I think it's lovely. I just don't like the idea that we should be expecting things in return for it.
1: Sure. Sure. Um, from the celebrity's perspective especially the charity one how different do you think it is to doing something like you know like make a wish where sometimes somebody a child with a health condition serious health condition will ask to meet their star their idol Uh, or just you know at events maybe a celebrity has to meet an investor and chat to them 15 minutes to keep them sweet I think
0: I think I think that is a bit different though, because at least with let's say a make a wish under traditional circumstances, you're meeting that person in the flesh. They're spending time with you and you alone. It's undoubtedly more for ten minutes, and they will get to learn about that person, and actually, you know, probably form a little bit of a, a little moment. You quite often find that with these make a wish um thing. They, they they form a little a, quite a bond, or or or, or a, a little a friendship with that person. You know, it's mm. it's, it's 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 a very important uh, organization. Make a wish. It's very good. Doing that over video calls, I think, is 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 difficult. Although obviously there are reasons for it currently. But I think it also depends on who the person being auctioned is. Let's face it some celebrities are better at public speaking and f- facing fans than others. I mean, I think a, a, a spin on this would be who could be, who would be the most sort of awkward celebrity to video call and, and and how much would you be willing to charge or how much would you be willing to pay, you know, for, let's say, Screech from Saved by the Bell, you know, uh, how much, <laughs> how much, 50 quid, 50 quid, I get half an hour with Screech from Silverbell so or, um... Mr. Blobby.
1: Yes, After exactly. five minutes, you want your money back. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: you know, the, these are, I just, yeah, the, the whole notion of, of paying for somebody else's time for 10 minutes, it's, it's quite funny. So for understanding
1: it, maybe, it you're piece would be like a rundown of the, the worst idea that like the people who you'd least actually want to spend 15 minutes talking to.
0: Well, or, or just the most, like, who, who the most obscure and and how awkward could such a conversation be?
1: Yeah, you know, I was at uh, an but, event but, once where they booked a lookalike of Ricky Gervais to come and give a talk. What? what why? What? Right? Like, it what didn't make ta- sense. What, what was he talking about? Well, he just, he did like a David Brent impression. The, the character from The Office for about 10 minutes. And everyone was really confused because he was brought on as though he actually was Ricky Gervais. And everyone was like, oh, I guess that's cool. Like, there's no reason why he'd be here. But yeah, let's give it up for Ricky Gervais. And then he comes out and he's very obviously not Ricky Gervais. That just sounds like we couldn't <laughs> afford to
0: get Ricky Gervais. Right. But, but, we've like, got, but we've got you the next best thing.
1: Well, and then if we Bring- did a video link... You'd be even more baffled because it's like, why'd you get Ricky Gervais on Videolink on a Zoom call? Why not get someone who's actually relevant? Or,
0: I don't know. Oh, it's... no, don't worry. We didn't. We got <laughs> someone who looks like Ricky Gervais. <laughs> uh, so, yes. Yeah. But I just, the whole premise of, on so many levels of, of, of fame and people's fascination with famous people. And, and, and the yeah. amount that some people are willing to spend for a superfluous, flash-in-the-pan conversation, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm just quite taken by.
1: I get that. You can't even That's take a like, selfie with them. So it's a pointless. Well, it's, it's I mean, but,
0: you know, a snapshot with a celebrity or a photograph of them, <laughs> which holds more merit?
1: Oh, well, find out next episode after I've written my piece. So that's why it's
0: slightly uh, zany second piece. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, bit different, I think. But I think that'd be quite a good one to explore. I dig it. My third piece is more uh, of a, a personal experience, of, of of just this past couple of weeks. Actually, it was quite traumatic, and um, I'm, I'm I'm over it now, but but the, the memory is still still quite fresh. Um, the middle mouse wheel on my mouse died I'm sorry for your loss and I I felt I I felt like I felt like I'd lost a thumb
1: (laughs) it was the most it was like the most Um,
0: minuscule thing to happen
1: sorry sorry Dan sorry I don't know if you're using a mouse properly if you're using your thumb on the scroll wheel that could be why you broke it okay
0: uh that's not quite what I meant (laughs) <laughs> I meant I went figuratively, not literally.
1: Okay, sorry. It's, it's it's a weird idea to put into my head. That's not my fault. That's, that's okay, your Replace
0: the word thumb with appendage. It just felt Well, like now I'm picturing parts. something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> so, the point of this is... Yeah. Things we take for granted that are at face value so small an advantage... But we use so much during, say, a typical day in the course of our lives that when it's momentarily um, unavailable to us, we suddenly realise how important it is. Hmm. That's basically my article. So for instance, I happen to use um, uh, a number of pieces of software uh, as part of my uh, job that requires a lot of panning, zooming, scrolling, uh, editing. And doing that without a middle mouse button is crippling <laughs> and it just, my productivity tanked for about three days. So I had to Amazon prime in a new mouse, you know, uh, and it was just funny because I mean, I could, I, I could click the middle mouse button and then awkwardly <laughs> drag the mouse around with that weird, horrible, up-and-down yeah, really. scroll button thing that never really works. Mm-hmm. But my the, the, the scroll was just freewheeling, and there was no traction. And it was, there was just all... Like CAD software and Photoshop is almost unbearable without a scroll. It just was not happening. So um, I, I basically would, would like to write a piece about you know what are the, uh, I guess, sort of... Um, Pieces of technology or items in our daily lives that are on the, 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 the face of it are so small or insignificant that we take for absolute granted, but actually, if they were taken away from us, we'd be, you know, on our hands and knees. That's basically the crux of my article. I'm actually old enough to remember computer mice that didn't have a middle mouse wheel. It was just two buttons did you know that the uh, first commercial mouse with a scroll wheel was released in
1: 1995 oh wow no so it was released no it, was, idea. it
0: was it was called the genius easy scroll uh, <laughs> released by a Taiwanese company KYE systems but the scroll wheel was popularized by the microsoft intelli mouse in 1996. But bizarrely, it wasn't supported in Microsoft Office until ninety seven. What are you using it for then? Just I don't know. Is that so weird? I mean,
1: the internet wasn't even that good at the time, so it's not like you're going to be scrolling through uh, various yeah. images and, and read it. See,
0: you see, this is why I, I, I never really get on with um, Apple Macs. Because traditionally, Macs don't have scroll wheels. Or they didn't, Ugh. at least it's um, weird yeah it's very odd
1: that's like that's like meeting someone who doesn't have eyebrows you wouldn't realize what's wrong with them straight away
0: yeah or li- yeah or left-handed people <laughs>
1: <laughs> Are you... yeah but like at least with no eyebrows you you'd know that something's not quite right straight away that there's something missing that's normally there with a left-handed person they've still got both hands
0: no, that's true. That's fair. So
1: I guess yeah, when you see them doing something left-handedly, you'd be like, "Just freak!" Oh, it
0: just just gives you a shudder, isn't it? It's like a baby with an earring. Just, uh, anyway, those, those are my three. <laughs> those are my three <laughs> Okay, what so the
1: first think? one is Net City. Yes. The second is obscure buying, and silly buying, celebrities. Yes, to buying be fame. Buying fame. Buying
0: buying buying moments with of of fame. Yes.
1: And then the last one's unrecognised or underrecognized essentials. Under there, or, or or things that are either underappreciated
0: or um, are taken for granted.
1: Yes, I really want to read some of your fiction because you've done three articles so far. I've um, I've given it a shot this week, and I want to see how you do. So that's my pick. Okay, yeah, number one, Net City. So Net City. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay,
0: no, I look forward to that. Um, I, I was sort of hoping you might go with that or, or uh, the scroll wheel, uh, but uh, no, excellent. Okay, well, thank you, Reese. And uh, to everyone listening, those have been our articles for this episode. We will now go away once again and write our articles or creative pieces, come back at the next episode and read them out for all to hear. This has been episode four of Prompt Night. Brought to you once again by The Basic Pitches. I've been Dan.
1: And I've been Reese. If you've enjoyed this episode, have any opinions or ideas you'd like to share, we're both on Twitter, Dan as Digital Gyoza and me as at DS. That's also my Instagram name. You can also comment on and rate the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, etc. Where you can also listen to all of our episodes and you can subscribe if you feel uh, so inclined. Thank you, Reese. It's been fantastic. And to everybody else, take care. Bye-bye.